together, I wanted to say a few more things about why it might be loving to be wise if we don't live, act, and think wisely. In other words, if we don't live in harmony congruently with the way things actually are in our life, then our actions that are born out of um, living in contention with, in reaction to reality, creates in our hearts and minds and our bodies suffering. We create suffering for ourselves and we create suffering for the people around us. What gives rise to uh, ease of being, open-heartedness, wise, compassionate, joyful, balanced actions is um, living in accordance with reality. So somehow to find out what is, what are the common laws of nature that if we can live in harmony with them, we can stop our struggle. That we can untangle the tangle of our chronic mental reactions to things. Because most of our suffering, in general, I said this earlier in the day, most of our suffering comes from what the Buddha described as a chronic habit of, <clears throat> of wanting things to be different than the way they are. In other words, not living in harmony with reality. And when I say wanting to, to things to be different than the way they are, it means that we meet an experience not with clarity and open-heartedness. We meet it with, I don't like it. We meet it with, with what he called tanha, craving, thirst, this uh, contracted desire for... Um, to reclaim a sense of pleasure, a contracted desire to get rid of whatever it is that's unpleasant, a contracted desire in its extreme to shut everything out. And the extreme version is suicidal ideation. That's a form of craving. Or a chronic habit of both personally and in our visions of the world, a chronic state of what, what the Buddha called becoming, called bhava, building, reinforcing, creating an identity in our mind of somebody, and again, when I say somebody, that's the imagined somebody. The identity in our mind is an imagined somebody. The somebody that's sitting here right now, all of you, just as you are, you're not an ego. You're just yourself. You're just a thinking, feeling, expressive being. But the version of yourself that plays through your mind, called virtual reality, the Buddha called that Sakaya Ditti, self-view. It's a view of yourself. And that view of yourself is is a, a mental creation. It's a kind of clinging, craving and clinging to a view that 
that depends on moving, an idea that you are moving from the past through the present on your way to the future. The reality of you is that you're always present. You have not come from the past. You are not going to the future. You are part of an unfolding now, an unfolding present. You are part of a creative expression of life, a perfect creative expression of life. Each person here. Each person here, a creative expression of life who could not be any different than the way you are, given all the causes and conditions that we talked about before lunch, all the things that came together for you to be here. And when we talk about that, we can say, yes, my past, I was this, and the future, I'll be this. All that's a story. What you have experienced as your life, and this may not make much sense right away, what you've experienced as your life is actually just unfolding presentness. Six experiences repeating themselves over and over. Seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, thinking. All happening. The only place they can ever happen is in an unfolding now. So there's never been really a, a literal thing called past. There were, past, there were moments that in the past, they were present moments. And there's, there's just, it's just unfolding. So the version of ourselves that plays through our mind that so much wants to be okay is driven by an idea that I've come from the past, I'm passing through here on my way to the future when I'll potentially be okay. That bhava, that becoming, that state of, that being something, that, that vision or version of yourself does not truly exist. It's a story. It has a certain conventional usefulness. When you talk to somebody, you say, yeah, in the past I was this and doing this in order for this to happen. But when we get caught in the state of what the Buddha called bhava or becoming, the present unfolding turns into an obstacle, as I mentioned before, an obstacle, an, a, um, a, the enemy, or, a play, or at best, a place that we pass through on our way to where happiness is to be found. When my sense of well-being, sense of relief, is associated with what happens next, Any of you have that in your life? Your sense of well-being is dependent on how things turn out. This puts our mind and our body in a state of fear and anxiety. It says, I need things to turn out a certain way to be happy. And there's always the question, if things have to turn out all right for me to be happy, there's always the possibility that they won't. And because of the uncertainty that arises from tethering our sense of well-being to something that has not yet occurred, we're in a state of what I call suspended happiness, what the Buddha called lokiya sukha, worldly happiness. Worldly happiness is 
a happiness that depends on satisfying some kind of hunger, getting what we want, getting the world to look like we want it to look. He also called that kind of happiness and well-being dependent happiness, the happiness of bondage, the happiness of slavery. And of course, it's an extreme word to use, but, but not happy at all, not a reliable kind of happiness. Fortunately, he talked about another kind of well-being and happiness. He called it lokutra sukha, rather than lokia sukha, which is worldly happiness, dependent happiness, the happiness of satisfying some hunger or getting what you want. He called it lokutra sukha, which means unstuck from, this wor- from the world, unstuck from dependency, a happiness that does not depend on things turning out the way you want them, an unassailable unconditional well-being and happiness. That's the happiness of a Buddha. That's the happiness of awakening. And you may not even call it happiness because the Buddha talked about the highest happiness is peace. But it turns out that when we awaken to that highest happiness, we realize that peace is our natural state. And it's not something that we need to postpone or wait for. And it is in that in that case of mistaken identity that we've actually been postponing the the natural peace and ease that is the natural peace and ease of our own mind. We've been seeking for it elsewhere, holding out, holding ourselves hostage until the world or our life or our mind turns out the way we want it to. The Buddha called that state of waiting, of hoping, expecting, of wanting. He called that tanha, craving, thirst, unslakable thirst. The translation for for craving. At Spirit Rock, we want you to know that the aim here is that unconditional well-being. That's the aim of the practice. The good news is, if you aim for that well-being that doesn't depend on circumstances, doesn't depend on the way things are, few things. All the other kinds of pleasure that are conditional will still will come in the wake of that. Two, if the world doesn't turn out the way you want it, you'll still be okay. The sky won't fall. And we see that in situations where people are in extreme, extreme stress. You find that the person that is, who's very present is able to maintain a buoyancy even in difficult conditions. You see when people are faced with, with um, intense accidents, there's something in them that wakes up that is untouched by whatever's happening. And we, I say this, that we aim here for, the, for lokutra sukha, unstuck from the world, unconditional well-being, happiness of peace. We aim for that because you'll be very disappointed if you're trying to use meditation practice for the purpose of gaining worldly happiness, more pleasure, more, more, um, more fun. I mean, you can... The byproduct, of course, you'll have a lot more fun and a lot more pleasure. But if you're aiming for that, you're selling yourself short because you're obscuring, you're overlooking the natural happiness of being conscious, the natural peace of being present. 
please. Could you, uh, we need the microphone if you don't mind. Thank you. Um, you said that there could be an accident and some part of them remains. I think like, you have to put the mic closer to your... Sure. So if, if part of them is remaining untouched or like to remain buoyant, then are they fully present? Are they... Fully present? Are what fully present? Is the person for whom something has happened and they're remaining buoyant in times of stress, or like you said specifically that part of them remains untouched? And the question is... I'm confused on how part of them can remain untouched if sort of what we're striving for is like full presence to I th- what's happening. I think our, we are primordially fully and always already present. We only, but we, we become quite habitually distracted. And once a person wakes up to what you always already are, you will, just because of conditioning, occasionally or maybe even often fall into, fall into forgetfulness just because it's part of a, a habit. But you will no longer be confused. You'll no longer be seeking that sense of peace anywhere else other than that, that, the waking up, to, the continual remembering or waking up to where you are. Does that speak to your question or no? Enough. I, take the microphone and please continue. I, I'm, no, I just said enough. <laughs> Unfortunately, I couldn't hear you very well, but. Somebody, when someone. No. <laughs> Somebody take the, whoever's talking, please use the microphone okay. so we can. The person right next to you dies. Yes. Okay? And you're buoyant. Is that being I don't mean present? you're. <laughs> I, I, no, no, I mean I'm, you're isn't that the question? being buoyant or being present just means you're right there with the reality of what's happening. I didn't say the, use the word joyful. I can't hear you until you get the microphone. Thank you. I was more confused by saying some part of them remains untouched. Because often if I'm aiming for full presence to whatever yes, stressful the, the, thing is happening. The awareness through which you're perceiving remains untouched. Awareness of grief is not grieving. Awareness of sad is not sad. Awareness is untouched by whatever one is aware of. Yes. Thank you. Sorry about the mic issues. I really have a hard time hearing sometimes. So where were we? I was, uh, oh yes, I was talking about the aim of, of that unconditional well-being, that well-being that doesn't depend on conditions. And the, the opposite of that is being caught in samsara, in a state of, of endless wandering, being in a state of, 
of tanha or craving, being caught in the state of mind of chronically wanting things to be different. To the degree that we spend our time that way, it is one of the most unloving ways of engaging in our life. And all of that, all of that seeking that each of us has comes out of love for ourselves. We are driven by wanting to be happy. It's completely innocent that I want to be happy by becoming the best person that I can be and the greatest person or whatever, the most wealthy, the most successful, whatever it is. All of that comes out of love. But if it's caught in an association with what's happening next, it's actually a very unloving. It has a very unloving effect. It creates suffering. Why is that? We'll start from the beginning. It can't deliver. This desire for becoming never delivers what you want. And even if you attain what you wanted, even if the golden dream is that you, that you have success or you have the alleviation of some physical ailment, the quieting of your mind temporarily, whatever that attainment is, for example, let's say my aim is to be able to take a... Um, you know, it's really kind of a privileged thing to be able to take a vacation. For some people, it just can never take a vacation. And you build up in your mind the sense that if I could take that vacation and go to that place that I want to go, then I would be happy. And you go on that vacation, and you've built it up as the source of this tremendous relief and great happiness the solution to everything you've longed for. You go on the vacation. If any of you have ever gone on a family vacation, they, it's a lot of buildup. They're never what they're cracked up to be. <laughs> but no matter what, what it is, you have that experience. It has with it a lot of pleasure. There may have been a lot of pleasure. But what that experience shows is that it comes and it goes. And what does it leave in its wake? it leaves in its wake a desire for more. And what is that feeling of desire? Feeling of desire is often a feeling, on the surface it has all kinds of beautiful associations. The underlying feeling of being in a state of desire is tense, is held, is, is a coloring of the present moment that says, it's all right here, but not as good as it will be then. You ever looked forward to the weekend? How does your experience of the week when you're looking forward to the weekend? How is... Any of you ever had, you know, worked on your home? Whether it was a, a owned home or a rental home. You know, in my own experience, I got to work on a home one time. And then it dawned on me that I was holding my breath until it was, the job was done. And then I realized, 
Like self-improvement, home improvement is endless. (laughs) Putting me in a perpetual state of waiting, of wanting, of hoping, and that's a state of contraction. And yet, everything we're taught from the time we're born is to keep that state of craving going. Keep feeding it. And then associating that, um, that seeking with happiness. I have a quote with me that I want to read before I move on, if I can find it. Here's what a Tibetan teacher said. Sometimes I think that the greatest achievement of modern culture is its brilliant selling of samsara, that endless wandering, and its barren distractions. Modern society seems to me to be a celebration of all the things that lead away from the truth, make truth hard to live for, and discourage people from even believing that it exists. And to think that all this springs from a civilization that claims to adore life, but actually starves it of any real meaning, that endlessly speaks of making people happy, but in fact blocks their way to the source of real joy. This modern samsara feeds off an anxiety and depression that it fosters and trains us all in and carefully nurtures with a consumer machine that needs to keep us greedy to keep going. Samsara is highly organized, versatile, and sophisticated, assaults us from every angle with its propaganda, and creates an almost impregnable environment of addiction in and around us. The more we try to escape, the more we seem to fall into the traps it's so ingenious at setting for us. Mesmerized by the sheer variety of perceptions, beings wander endlessly astray in samsara's vicious cycle. And I read this, I, I recounted this early today. Obsessed then with false hopes, dreams, and ambitions which promise happiness and lead only to misery, we're like people crawling through an endless desert, dying of thirst. And all that samsara holds out holds out to us to drink as a cup of salt water designed to make us thirstier. So the, so the number one source of our stress is to be on that wheel, that samsaric wheel of endless searching. And unless we understand both the pleasure of our world, its limitations, and what it's like to be free of that dependency... We are, we're actually acting innocently but ignorantly unloving to ourselves. So the Buddha's suggestion was first things first. Become wise. Learn to see reality for what it is in real time. Don't just adopt a theory about it or a view about it. In real time, see the way reality is. And then live in accordance with that. And if you see reality as it is, live in accordance with it, you will naturally, your tight fist of clinging, grasping, becoming, waiting, hoping, will open. And the most loving thing that you can do is learn to let go, to let yourself be, to, to not hold yourself hostage to a future that never arrives, but to stay open to to this, uh, as Alan Watts calls, this eternal now. He says, uh, as long as I'm quoting Alan Watts, he says, you don't make music in order to reach the end of the composition. Otherwise, 
the fastest musicians would be the best. You don't dance in order to arrive at a particular place on the floor as in taking a journey. When you make music, the music itself is the point. When you dance, the dance itself is the point. The same is true in meditation. The point is always arrived at at the present moment. And in his inimitable beat style, he said, the point is to dig the present, to groove with the eternal now, and to see the place where it's at is uh, simply here and now. So to realize that unfolding here and now, the Buddha recommended that you both reflect on, look at reality as it is, um, reflect on it, and also to notice how it is in the, here, in, the, in the living present. Essentially what he said, and you can think about this, but then you want to open your eyes to it. Let it really touch you. Let it ferment you. He, says, he said that if you're born, I'm going to paraphrase a little bit. If you're born, the definition of birth, leading cause... Well, the leading cause of death, first of all. But the leading cause, if you're born, what comes with it is all kinds of stress. It's not the only thing that comes with it, but stress is an inevitable part of life. Things that are hard to bear are part of life, if you're born. If you are born, if you're one of us, there will be eight winds that blow through your life. Not four, but eight. The eight winds, praise, blame. Gain, loss. Fame, shame. Pleasure, pain, gain, loss, fame, shame. Praise, blame. Not just praise, not just gain, not just pleasure, not just fame. If you don't have all eight of those, you're not one of us. Now, if we're not in harmony with this truth, we think when, we have, when there's blame, when there's pain, when there's loss, when there's shame, that there's something wrong. And that gets extended in that personality view, that view of ourself. Not only is there something wrong, there's something wrong with me. And once we think there's something wrong with me, any of you ever think something's wrong with you? How do you know that in real time without consulting your memory? My teacher said, you need the past and thoughts to suffer. You don't need anything to be free. The boulders of the past rest on your chest because we, we fall into that mistaken view of ourselves. No evidence for something wrong with you in real time. You need the past ideas for that kind of suffering. But it's our reaction to these difficulties that everyone has, our reactions that lead us into that virtual world of thinking there's some, there's thinking we're somebody that has something wrong with us. How does that happen? Every experience you have as you sat here today, 
whatever, and your experience is basically what's entering your different senses. Every person here had a whole range of sense experiences since you got here today. It's a miracle to be able to see, to hear, to smell, to taste, to feel, to think. How amazing is that? Just to be able to have those experiences. We could just stay with the fact of those experiences and the mystery of being able to, to speak together and be together. We'd all fall into a state of wonder. A kind of freedom that's available to us. Is what I'm saying making any sense? But, we, but these six experiences that we are able to have here each one comes with a, a little valence. We talked about it. I slipped it into the instructions early this morning. Some of them are, come with an association of, of pleasantness. Some are pleasant. Some are unpleasant. Some are neither pleasant or unpleasant. We haven't learned how to, how to just take in the pleasure. We haven't learned how to take in the pain, the, the unpleasant. We haven't especially... We haven't learned how to take in things that are neither pleasant or unpleasant. When things are pleasurable, we tend to go right into wanting more. It's a law. When it's unpleasant, we go into, out of love for ourselves, I don't want this. When it's neither pleasant or unpleasant, we tend to check out, get bored, space out when it's neutral. These three reactions, these three reactions of grabbing, pushing away, spacing out, are the cause of that whole state of craving. If we could accommodate the pleasure, it would gladden our hearts, make us not want to be anywhere else. If we could accommodate the pain, it would crack our hearts open. It would, it, it would open up our, our quivering heart, the heart of compassion. If we could accommodate the, the neutral, we would fall into this, this unshakable balance of heart, balance of mind called equanimity. But instead, out of habit, innocent habit, we end up getting, grabbing on to the pleasure, pushing away the unpleasant, and checking out and then entering into virtual reality with the neutral, spending a lot of time looking for, you know, in flights of fantasy. Any of you recognize yourself in those reactions? It's human. If you don't have these three reactions, you're not one of us. But this is what the untrained heart and mind does. The trained heart and mind sees that pleasure is a changing condition, pain is a changing condition, the neutral is a source of peace and is also a changing condition. If we don't have that understanding, we end up trying to to continue to hold on to pleasurable things. And when they change, change, we suffer. We lose it, we suffer, and we want more. We try to get away from the unpleasant, and it's like reinforcing it. Notice when you you have a physical pain in your body today. This may not 
feel relevant to world peace and suffering, but it's right at the heart of it, what's happening in your knee. When something is unpleasant, you tighten up. As soon as you tighten up around that knee pain, that knee pain, just like world pain, turns into a monolith. And we start to globalize. The whole world is that knee pain or that that world pain. We forget, even in the world right now, that there are people sitting like this. There are people doing beautiful things. There is so much love. There is so much joy. There is so much beauty. But our habit, our reactive habit, for example, when something's unpleasant, if you injure yourself, all our attention goes to that one spot. We forget that 95% of our body is actually okay. And you see it happening right now in our world situation. Because we don't understand the reactive mind, we end up feeding these visions of reality that, um, that make us lose touch with, with the more comprehensive understanding that, that there is pleasure, pain, gain, loss, fame, shame. There, there's all things happening. That it's not just the Trump administration. Sorry. <laughs> not insignificant, but, but it's not everything. And our mind will, will, will monolith, will turn whatever our view of reality into a monolith. So this, with your pain, from a distance, from that reactive mind, your pain will appear solid, monolithic. But if you could just feel the unpleasantness of it, open to it, notice that it's not just a monolith of pain. There's stabbing, there's burning, there's tingling. It's always changing. It's not solid at all. It's a, it's a stream of different vibrations and pulsations. And if you kept noticing it, you would see it, that it appears and disappears. And in fact, if you got close enough, it might just vanish completely. All you'd find is space. Same thing if you put your body under a microscope. From a distance or from a reactive place, it appears like there's a, a solid body here. But the underlying world, you put it under a microscope, there's nothing there. There's space. Whatever on whatever level you can still experience things about our body, they're always changing. There's nothing here that stays constant. You've probably all heard the statistics about um, how every cell of our body is, is replicated within seven years. And there's actually, even psychologically, there's there now is studies done that there's absolutely no correlation that you can find so much in your both psychological and physical body um, no correlation to a 70 year old to their 14 year old body and mind that you lose all associations except for of course memory so we're not as Solid as we think. Is it getting too warm again? Okay. (laughs) Sorry I put you on the spot there. (laughs) 
Thank you for sharing. No. <laughs> uh, anyway, getting back to what is the, the most loving thing is to be wise and to know that pleasure, pain, or pleasant and unpleasant and neutral are changing conditions. And it turns out that if we can learn to accommodate those moments of pleasure, of, of unpleasantness, of, of the neither pleasant or unpleasant, that that has the effect, meeting that with attention and openness, has the effect of cutting the chain that would usually lead us to the very unloving mechanism of craving. The very unkind way of being with ourselves, being in a state of reaction to the way things are. Cutting that chain allows us to open to the flow of reality and to not postpone our sense of well-being until things turn out the way we want them to. To be able to find peace wherever we are. So in the central teaching of the Buddha, the, the one that every other discourse is an outgrowth of this one discourse, <clears throat> called the Four Noble Truths. The Buddha said, if you're born, you will have stress. Things that are hard to bear. The stress of being born, stress of getting sick, the stress of aging, stress of dying, the stress of not getting what you want, the stress of not wanting what you get, the stress of loss, of separation. Any others you can think of? that this is an, an essential part of being born. And his prescription for dealing with that, the most loving thing that you can deal with that, deal with that is to open to it. Is to not be fighting that truth. Because if you fight that truth, you lose. If you stop fighting that truth, you can find peace in spite of it. It's not wrong. It's the way things are. It's not just for some people. It's not your fault. The most loving thing that you can do for yourself is to be in harmony with that fact. You want to be able to say, yes, I've, I have really let myself open to the reality of sickness, of old age, of dying. Notice how you feel when I even mention these words in the hall. It's almost like a disease when really it's just the way it is. We know that logically. But what do we do with our, our corpses? We dress them up like they're young. What do we do with people who are actually old? We put them away where nobody sees them. What do we do with our, our young bodies as they start to devolve? We spend billions upon billions stretching them, Botoxing them, beautifying them, living in what we could call the cult of youth. What the Buddha called this was enchantment with youth, enchantment with health, enchantment with life. The three enchantments or what he called the three prides. And when he opened to reality the way it is, these three prides or these three enchantments just melted away because he realized, oh, 
If you're born, youth will give way to aging. If you're born, health will give way to illness. If you're born, birth will give way to dying. This is, this is how things are. So all this in pride in youth and pride in health and pride in, in life gives you, as one person used, the metaphor of rope burn. You hold on so tight. Not very loving. So that's why in the Don Juan books, the Carlos Castaneda, you want to have death as your advisor sitting on your shoulder. Not as a morbid, being busy dying. You don't want to be busy being the one who's dying, but you want to see this is how life is. As if you're in contention with that fact, you'll be like this. You'll be running from reality, running from silence. And unfortunately, that hasn't made anybody happy. Hasn't brought anyone any peace. The wisest thing you can do is be in harmony with this fact. Dalai Lama said, when asked what surprised him most about humanity, he answered, man. Because he sacrifices his health in order to make money. Then he sacrifices money to recuperate his health. Then he's so anxious about the future that he does not enjoy the present. The result being that he does not live in the present or in the future. He lives as if he's never going to die and then dies having never really lived. So just a final piece about this truth of what is called dukkha, that which is hard to bear. The most loving thing we can do is open to dukkha. Not to turn dukkha into a dukkha's hard to bear, stress. Not to turn it into a religion, but just see it the way it is. This is from Jennifer Wellwood, called the Dakini Speaks. My friends, let's grow up. Let's stop pretending we don't know the deal here. Or if we truly haven't noticed, let's wake up and notice. Look, everything that can be lost will be lost. It's simple. How could we have missed it for so long? Let's grieve our losses fully, like ripe human beings. But please, let's not be so shocked by them. Let's not act so betrayed as though life had broken her secret promise to us. Impermanence is life's only promise to us, and she keeps it with ruthless impeccability. To a child, she seems cruel, but she is only wild, and her compassion exquisitely precise Brilliantly penetrating, luminous with truth, she strips away the unreal to show us the real. This is the true ride. Let's give ourselves to it. Let's stop making deals for a safe passage. There isn't one anyway, and the cost is too high. We're not children anymore. The true human adult gives everything for what cannot be lost. Let's dance the wild dance of no hope. Jennifer Wellwood. Of course, I've worked backwards a little just now. The Buddha talked about opening to the way things are, not being children anymore, being ripe human adults. He said, uh, he didn't stop there. He said, 
well, what turns our, our mental, what turns all these essential stresses into mental suffering is wanting things to be other than that. That's what I talked about first, that craving for becoming, craving for pleasure, craving to avoid pain. Even though it comes out of love for ourselves, it actually intensifies our misery. But also the Buddha didn't stop there. And perhaps the most loving thing we can do and wise and loving thing we can do is to realize the, the end of that craving. That's the third truth. There's an end to that habit of making, um, of making everything about me, making everything about becoming, making everything about holding on or pushing away. Why it's so hard to make it through a day of practice how, how much we're constantly leaning toward wanting it to be over, wanting to get something out of it, wanting to fulfill. We can't just rest. Why can't we just do it for the sake of it? It's got to mean something about the future. That's craving. And that, has, that keeps us in a state of perpetual um, dissatisfaction. Fortunately, the Buddha said there's an end to that. You can drop it. And how do you drop it? There's a path. That path is, at the center of that path, is moment by moment. We, we use the very experience that we're having, even the experience of dissatisfaction, to remind us to stay where we are. Open our tight fist of grasping to realize that there is space here. There is peace here, open, inviting, and comfortable and to make use of this natural spaciousness and ease. And don't look any further. As the Buddha, as a a Tibetan teacher says, don't look into the tangled jungle looking for the great awakened elephant who's already resting quietly at home in front of your own fireplace. Nothing to undo, no place to go. Nothing to want. Everything is available here. So the most loving thing you can do is learn to live in harmony with reality. We don't realize that we've been out of love for ourselves. We've been actually creating misery. Now, when you've studied, uh, this is the last thing I'll say, and then we'll just do all practice for the rest of the afternoon. Save the last piece for later. <laughs> so please uh, stand up and then sit down. Get, refresh your posture, and then we'll work with... The next piece of the practice, we'll work with the the reactions of the mind, the the moods, emotions, mental states. Please don't go far. Two more window cracks would be great for any volunteers.
while we're beginning to settle in again, I'll just leave you with a, a little, little some, some statistical snippets giving what we talked about, the nature of our body. <clears throat> this will be a little prelude to what we do in the next piece of the afternoon. Back. Humans spend a third of their lives sleeping. Each person has a unique tongue print. There's enough iron in the human body to make one small nail. A cough releases an explosive charge of air that moves up to 60 miles per hour. Sneezes can travel up to 100 miles per hour. It takes 17 muscles to smile, 43 to frown. It takes approximately 200,000 frowns to create one permanent brow line. <laughs> Most people blink about 25 times a minute, about 20,000 times a day. Average person speaks about 31,500 words per day. Each, every breath we inhale, billions of atoms that end up as heart cells, kidney cells, brain cells, etc. The average adult is made up of 100 trillion cells. If you unwound and joined DNA from the genes of the cells, it would fit in an ice cube. The string would stretch 80 billion miles. That is from the earth to the sun and back 400 times. The body gives birth to 100 billion red cells every day. Every square inch of the body is populated by 32 million bacteria that are born and die in it. Humans shed 600,000 particles of skin every hour, about 1.5 pounds a year. By 70, an average person will lose 105 pounds of skin. Most dust particles in your house are made from dead skin. The body makes a new stomach lining every five days, new liver every six weeks, replaces new head hair every two to five years, replaces new eyebrows that consist of 450 hairs every three to five months, body grows new skin once a month, replaces a new skeleton every seven years, 50,000 cells of your body will die and be replaced with new cells all while you listen to this sentence. So in other words, any given moment, parts of your body are appearing and disappearing because they are atoms. So if you think that you are your physical body, which body are you talking about? The body of today is not the same as yesterday. How do we live in harmony with reality? First is we try to open to our experience moment to moment. So we find a, a posture and a quality of attention that says, I am going to take in the way things are. I'm going to, for this time, not look back and not look ahead. I'm going to settle back into the moment. Did you have something you wanted to say? As my attention has the habit of going out, I'm going to, just as a method, I'm going to close my eyes softly and let myself have a little bit of seclusion so that I can gather my inner resources. 
keep going out of myself in search. So I'm aware of my eyes closed. I'm aware of my back body, my front body, my contact points. Breath in the middle of it all, my life breath. And you to let the breath guide me to a calm abiding. Sounds call my attention. I will graciously receive them. Other sensations call my attention. I'll let the breath recede and just rest my attention in the sensation that's occurring knowing whether it's pleasant, it's unpleasant, or neither pleasant or unpleasant. So notice common states of mind that when I don't notice them, they make me feel I can't be happy here. I want to notice when my mind is wanting. The objects of wanting are endless, but I want to feel that state of wanting. Notice that wanting is like an internal weather front. It comes and it goes. I also want to know when my mind is in a state of resistance or contentiousness or ill will or irritation, all kinds of forms of aversion. The objects of aversion are endless. The world, me, place, the practice, but I want to feel the state of aversion. What's that like? Fear, irritation. I want to feel it through the body and recognize it as a changing condition, recognize its selflessness, how it comes by itself and it goes away. Define me, this feeling of aversion. It's just a mental feel restless and agitated if that's what arises. I want to feel dullness if that's what arises. And I want to notice doubt, uncertainty, confusion, if that's what arises. And I want to come out of the story of these states and actually feel what they're like. I also want to feel my moods and emotions that may become stronger than the breath. They come associated with a story, but I want to feel what it's like to feel sad or happy, joyful, fearful, grief-stricken, worried. Feel, oh no, this is what anger feels like. Feel it through the body. Notice what happens to it. All the mental states that may present themselves, I want to recognize them, accept them, I want to investigate their changing nature and their quality. And I want to notice that they are just happening by themselves. They're not me. They're not mine. I need to look for these mental states. I don't need to look for moods. I don't need to look for sounds. But if they present themselves, I welcome them. 
It says, even if there are a crowd of sorrows that empty your house of its furniture, meet them at the door laughing and invite them in. breath, just this moment.
you aware right now? What are you aware of? Who are you meeting the experience you're aware of? The openness with strain or contentiousness? Make something happen? Off. this moment. Strain, struggle. Is unfolding, changing. Zone springing up and falling back like waves.
few minutes be imbued with with kindness, we sometimes call kindfulness. Sinfulness. It's fragile, body and mind. I appreciate all of you for staying with the day up to this point. Um, just before we do a little walking practice, just want to um, just inquire a little bit into, I guess the question is, does it make sense to you that the most loving thing that you can do is to be wise? Does that make sense? Does it make sense? Is it loving to cling and condemn? It's what the reactive mind does. Any questions about this or anything that was said up to this point? Please. We need the microphone if you don't mind. Starting to look like you're fading. I need to get you outdoors soon.
Um, so I guess my question has more to do not so much with loving yourself, but with loving other people. Um, and sort of, I guess, the tension between clinging in the sense of caring um, and holding, holding those whom you love deeply close um, and this idea of sort of non-attachment and just being open to things as they come. Um, how, how can you really care for someone without? When we're clinging to someone, we're not caring for them. When we're caring for them, when we're bonded to them and caring for them, that's, that's not clinging. That's a kind of healthy attachment that if you didn't have that, then you wouldn't really have a, a relationship with that person. So, we, so it's part of our discovery, not adopting a theory, but part of our discovery to see the difference between caring and clinging. Clinging is a kind of suffering, is a kind of, I can't be, I, I, I can't survive without you being well. Or it's, caring is just the, the natural movement of the heart that, that comes when, we're, when we let someone in. Clinging is actually an enemy of caring. So we often, in the teachings, there's the quality of what we call metta, you know, loving kindness, the, the expression of an awakened heart, a heart that's awake, one that's aware. The natural expression of that is goodwill. I care about you. I wish you well, just because that's what my heart wants for you. And the wider that circle of caring, the more it can become boundless, include everyone. But the first place that we notice it are the people that we've been, that we've been closest to. And that's, it's that quality of goodwill, of wishing well, of, and of course of our heart breaking in compassion when, when that person is suffering. That kind of love is often mistaken for what's called its, its near enemy, which is attachment or clinging. It disguises itself as love. It's very sentimental. It's very much, I need you. Uh, I want you. I have to have you. But it's really not love. And you'll see in your relationships and discover the difference between that love, that well-wishing, and clinging. Now, it's, it's, a, it's a very challenging dance as a parent or as a partner, as a sibling, as a, to, um, to not fall into that kind of clinging, a kind of unhealthy dependency. Of course, there's a healthy dependency, an interdependency, but it often devolves into an unhealthy dependency. I can't survive without you, you know, or unless you turn out the way I want you to be. And that's actually a disguise for love. It's not really love. But again, I can talk about this all day, but we have to, we have to discern that in our own life and practice. Please, in the very back. Please wait for the microphone. So I think a question that's been with me all day is um, we gain... I mean, this is my first time doing this, but hopefully with time and with practice, that you have that ability to find that, that 
to be wise, you know, being happy. And um, at what point, though, when you're surrounded by others who are taking a different path and theirs isn't, you know, it's kind of a path along negativity or letting kind of all the outside influences affect them. Um, at what point are, is that no longer healthy for you? Or do you under, kind of understand what I'm saying? No, I've never heard it. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's, it's inevitable in our life since everyone, everyone is, uh, is the inheritor of the causes and conditions of their life and their conditions that brought them to be may be different than yours. And their values may be different. Their, 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 the development of their heart may be different. Their cultivation may be different. Their view of reality very different. And that's a big part of our, of our compassion practice toward ourselves, first of all, is, our, is the challenge at being able to stay, keep open, keep our heart open with people who are different than us. That's a huge piece of self-compassion because it's really hard to bear because a lot of our identity is built around our views and opinions of how the world and how people should be. So the first place, first things first, is resolving our own reactivity. So, but it also acknowledges that the life acknowledges that this is really hard to bear. It's really difficult. And it, you know, the, the way I like to think of it, it, it's a hot fire to be able to try to work with people who are so opposite or so different than me, who, see, who seem to be, uh, how uh, they appear to me to be planting the very seeds and causes for suffering that I'm trying to do exactly the opposite. Very hard to bear. And as such, it's a, it's a hot fire. And I will... First and foremost, I will try to find peace in the middle of that situation. I will try to find peace by having a wide view of how that person came to be who they are so I don't just see them in a vacuum as, and I don't otherize them as just that's who that person is. I see all the forces. The wider my lens, the more caring and compassionate I will be to that person and try to you know, keep my heart open my mind opened to, to them as a unique expression of life. And the only way they could be up to this moment. And so my perspective, as it widens, may create a little room for uh, open-heartedness, more caring. I can work all day at that, all night, day after day, year after year, and if I notice that no matter how much how much cultivation I'm doing to be in that person's orbit with an open heart, I'm still, I'm no, if I notice that I'm really sh- shutting down, getting weaker and weaker, unable to stay open, I don't blame them for that. I say, I say to myself, this is too hot a fire for me. I need to go to safer ground. I need to, go, I need to recharge my batteries. I need to change venues or something. Uh, because I'm not able to stay open right now. But I don't keep blaming in my mind. But uh, as you may hear from this, it's not a failure. 
to be able to keep open. It's just understanding that conditions are such that I'm not able to, to sustain an open-heartedness right now and I need to take care of myself. So it's both attempting to, to practice open-hearted compassion and understanding toward people who are different. It's also to be able to practice self-compassion. Often at that point where, we, where we're not able to stay open, we, we judge ourselves as failure or we just keep intensify our blame of the other person for what we're feeling. And so this way is a middle way that says, I will do everything I can to resolve my own contracted heart and keep my heart open, but, um, but sometimes the most loving and wise thing to do is back off. Change channels, change jobs, change relationships. It's not always a failure. But there's no objective view on... When you do that, that's part of our own internal authority to, um, to resolve our own, our own reactions. Because if you're born, you'll have reactions to people. People are the hardest thing in this world. Just you. So the bottom line is, and I'll let you, let you let this percolate a little bit. That person that you're having a hard time with in your life, anybody here having a hard time with people in your life? Just contemplate this for a little bit. Like you, like your unique individuality, that person is uniquely individual. Like you, that person has a version of themselves playing in their mind that is, um, that is uh, um, incredibly, like you, is incredibly insecure. And I don't say this when that person's insecure as an indictment. Every human being is carrying around a version of ourselves, that Sakaya Ditti, self-view, that is tethered to this body that is aging and vulnerable. It's tethered to our moods, their moods, that are always changing. It's tethered to their thoughts that are always changing. It's tethered to those worldly winds that are always changing. So we're going up, and we're the greatest person with one person, we're the worst person with another. We're the smartest, we're the less, least smart. We're the, we're the healthiest, we're the least healthy. Depending on who you're with, your view of yourself is changing. So if, you have, if you're born, you have an insecure sense of yourself because it's tethered to all these things that are always in a state of flux. So f- insecurity is the foundation of existence, if you haven't noticed. Not only that, the identity view is based on, on time. The whole sense of ourselves is based on the version of, that has come from the past, passing through the present, on our way to the future. And if my identity is based on how things turn out in the future, isn't it true that life, that time is running out? We have a shelf life. If we're identified with our body, it's getting old. We're going to die. We have a short... So when it's your identity is tethered to time, 
there's insecurity because it's running out. Tethered to the body, it's dying. Tethered to moods changing, thoughts changing. It is a sea of insecurity. Now, we all love ourselves. You and the person who, who you're having a hard time with. We all love ourselves. And we, we all feel that ground of insecurity. And we're all desperately trying to find security. Some find, try to find security in massive inflation, narcissism. Others try to find that security through, through the beautification of the body, through the quieting of the mind, through, through some attempt to make something last. But in all cases, everyone is driven by the same desire to be happy, driven by the same insecurity. When you notice your insecurity, your version of it, and your various attempts to try to, try to make yourself secure, often using things that actually make you more secure, like being special, like as one of my friends says, you know, he noticed when he was doing walking meditation and other people would walk by, he would notice that his posture lifted a little bit, and he started using, using the mental labeling of lifting and placing, lifting and placing. He added to it, lifting, placing, looking good, looking good. <laughs> Every one of us has a version of narcissism, of wanting to be special. And what do we do when we, when we experience that, that, speci- that, um, that insecurity? When, we, when you notice that you're posturing or you're inflated, you notice that you're feeling less than, how do you usually regard yourself? Do you relate to yourself with compassion, kindness, or do you just compound the stress by saying, oh, you're so insecure. You're so full of yourself. Or what do you do when you see that other person who's full of themselves or practicing of narcissistic megalomania. You judge them. So if we could see our common humanity, our common insecurity, we would start to, our heart would break for ourselves, first of all, and for even that, those people who seem like they are really outrageous, whoever they may be. And that we could at least find a place in our heart to see their humanity. Again, we'd have to widen our view beyond just seeing them in that vacuum of what's showing up right now. We'd see all the causes and conditions that lead them to be who and what they are. The shroud of, of confusion and, or privilege or whatever it is that, that makes people oblivious to others. We would, we'd see, oh, even that person worthy of, of compassion or that person in my life that's hard to bear. Myself, how could you regard yourself with anything other than mercy when you see how insecure you are? Well, that'll be our last part of the day. In the meantime, try to take your body, your tender body on a walk tender mind as it as things and try to regard everything with that attention mixed with kindness 
kindfulness. And we'll just have a 10-minute a 10-minute uh, um, walk plus five minutes transition period. So please get out, get some fresh air, make it an act of loving kindness, an act of caring. And anybody who wants to just check in, I'll be up here. Just a second. I think this poem from the ecstatic poet Hafez captures a little bit of the spirit of what we've done up to this point. It's called Cast All Your Votes for Dancing. I know the voice of depression still calls to you. I know those habits that can ruin your life still send their invitations, but you are with the friend now. And I'll just interject. The friend is your awareness. You are with the friend now, and you look so much stronger. You can stay that way and even bloom. Keep squeezing drops of the sun from your prayers and work and music and from your companion's beautiful laughter. Keep squeezing drops of the sun. Again, I'll interject. What are drops of the sun? The light of attention. The light and the expression of that light, which is love, compassion. In the Tibetan tradition, they talk about the three, what are called the three kayas. Sambodakaya, Nirmanakaya, Dharmakaya. Essence, your natural essence is clarity, is, is openness, emptiness. Its nature is clarity. In other words, cognizance, noticing. Its expression is, they call it, unconfined capacity, which is all the, the juicy qualities that flow from a heart and a mind that's open. Intelligence, love, compassion, joy. And when love is all-inclusive, it expresses itself as that, uh, that uh, impartial love called equanimity. Openness to everyone and everything. That's the natural expression of an open heart. So I just wanted to digress a little bit. So keep squeezing drops of the sun from your prayers and work and music and from your companions' beautiful laughter. Keep squeezing drops of the sun from the sacred hands and glance of your beloved and, my dear, from the most insignificant movements of your own holy body. That continuity of mindfulness, keeping your mind in your body and your body in your mind. Never thought that this could be the, the, the means that you wake up to this, um, this natural clarity and love, wisdom and love. All comes from orienting yourself to the living present, most intimately with what he says are the most insignificant movements of your own holy body. We are so chronically disembodied. It's why we have such a hard time uh, being able to um, have the resilience, the courage 
the strength of heart and mind to be able to deal with the measure of difficulties that present themselves right now in our own individual lives and in the world. And there is something about having that harmony of mind and body, being attuned to what's happening moment to moment that gives you, puts you in touch, that can put you in touch with that single point called ekagata, one point, that in point that includes everything, where you feel, where you can feel at home, even when things are um, falling apart. You can find a place of safety and peace, a refuge. Why do we say, I go to the Buddha for refuge? We don't say, I go to the statue. We go to that wakefulness that lives in us. Learn, but then he goes on, because this is our conditioning. He says, learn to recognize the counterfeit coins that may buy you just a moment of pleasure, but then drag you for days like a broken man behind a farting camel. <laughs> you are with the friend now. Learn what actions of yours delight her. What actions of yours bring freedom and love? Whenever you say the name of the divine, this is Hafez, dear pilgrim, my ears wish my head was missing so they could finally kiss each other and applaud all your nourishing wisdom. Oh, keep squeezing drops of the sun from your prayers and your work and your music and from your companions' beautiful laughter and from the most insignificant movements of your own holy body. Now, sweet ones, be wise. Cast all your votes for dancing. So the most loving thing we can do is to be wise to be in harmony with nature, to be in accord with reality, because otherwise our whole life is a, is a running from silence, is a running from ourselves. Is a, our life is a... Excuse me. Someone asked me during the break about about dealing with the um, how can you be just aware what what sounds like on the surface passive letting things be when there is there seems to be the potential for a a level of um, misery, level of, of um, loss of safety and security, unseen since the since World War II, since the the Holocaust, and that we can't, one can't, if you have this view of reality, one can't sit passively by, and. What I said was, of course, if that's the reality that, that is occurring, you don't sit passively by. Wisdom and love tells you 
You have to act. But if you act with ill will and with grasping, not a very effective activist. Whatever you do, whatever planning that you do in the here and now, whatever organizing you do, it all has to take place right here. It has to be imbued with openness and love. You can't let your caring devolve into hatred because then we just add more tension. But of course, if your heart is moved, that's what it does, is it acts, it cares. But if it acts from a disembodied, unpresent place, our action actually does not usually bring more benefit, well-being. just adds to the compounding of otherizing, othering, hatred, ill will. Now, it's easy to talk about. It's another thing to be able to act with, with love, with compassion. But our practice is to keep moment by moment, keep clarifying what's, what's the state of the mind that is acting here. Is this, am I, am I in a state of constriction, state of contraction, state of fear? Because it's very easy, and as I was saying to this nice fellow, very easy to think that I have to stay miserable to act. And in fact, it's our own fullness, our own wholeness that allows us to act, to do compassionate action true compassion action, which is with our heart open. There are more, and maybe you, I don't know if you'd include yourself in this, there being, I have a nice sample size after 32 years of leading classes and retreats, huge amounts of burned out activists who, who up until they burnt out, didn't realize that they had to balance their activism with self-care, self-compassion, and to be able to come from a place of, of wholeness, a place of warmth, a place of kindness, that they became, they recognized themselves as having become part of the problem of our world, part of the polarizing that so easy to blame the, the, the other side. When if, you know, some of my most interesting reflections when just being human, I have my, my um, version of the other, the ones with the different views. I've been from time to time very identified with my point of view and very full of myself with my point of view. But then I started reflecting the things I didn't like about those, those people. And I noticed that every quality that I attributed to them were disowned qualities about my own disowned quality, qualities that I wasn't so accepting in myself. Please. Could we have the microphone, please?
it seems that, for me anyway, <clears throat> there's an elephant in the room that we're not addressing when we talk about, um, well, for me, someone who's very different, who may be a narcissistic megalomaniac. Um, really? <laughs> just that maybe someone, and if this offends anyone, it's my own view, but what you were just talking about, and I really believe, if any of you were part of the Women's March, yes, um, there was a spirit of caring and compassion that I have not experienced in a march like that ever before. And it felt, in a way, like a family reunion there was so much caring. There wasn't any violence or there were some, you know, comments, but speaking about a way of being an activist now, it seems like that's the, the model. Yeah, that's because women were in charge. Well, I didn't want to say that. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. So where were we? Yes, the, the other reflects our own disowned qualities very often. So part of, our, part of our own practice, part of our self-compassion practice and compassion to others is resolving those places in ourselves that we easily project and attribute to others. And I was attempting to do that in talking about our common humanity, our common insecurity, and our common narcissism that every one of us wants to be special. And that, uh, and that, that specialness is, is met with, with our life as it unfolds with inherent insecurity because whatever, whatever greatness, whatever specialness, which each person is just by virtue of your being, not based on accomplishment, not based on time, but just by your very coming into being. That Thich Nhat Hanh line is not just a throwaway. You, who are the richest person on earth, who've been going around begging for a living. Stop being the destitute child. Come home, reclaim your heritage. What you discover in real time, the wisdom of immediacy, is that you discover that the most loving thing that you can do is have is wake up to your your inherent primordial greatness each of you there's not one person here who is lacking where is the lack here and now where is the not enough where is the i should be different than the way i am that is the story of the, of the personality view. It is, a, it is a second-hand version of you. It misses the point of your existence, of your beauty. So the wisest thing you can do, most loving thing you can do, is regard yourself with kindness and mercy, compassion. And when you inevitably, as a human being... When you, when you find you're something that is really hard to bear, 
You start with, instead of blaming, demanding, instead of hiding away, we start with, this is a moment of suffering. We open our heart to ourselves. This is a moment of suffering. And as one of my colleagues, who used to be somebody who sat with me a lot, says, move on to the next one. Suffering, stress, things that are hard to bear are part of life. This is a moment of suffering. Suffering's part of life. Can I meet myself with kindness and self-compassion? And if you can't do it in words, do it in physical gestures. Rub your heart. Really great at giving kind attention to others. Not so good at giving it to ourselves. The Buddha said you could scan the world in all directions and not find anyone more deserving than oneself. We start here. And if we can't start here, we can think of somebody who we know cares about us and imagine them soothing us with their kind words, actions. Care about your suffering. So wisdom, when we see our insecurities, wisdom tells us that we're nothing substantial. We're nothing that can be defined. That's what wisdom tells us, that we're empty in a way. But love tells us that we're connected to everything. As Kala Rinpoche says, you live in illusions and the appearance of things. That there is a reality, and you are that reality. When you understand this, you'll see that you're nothing. But being nothing, you're everything. That's all. And then the extension of that, in the teachings of Sri Nisargadatta, an Advaita Vedanta teacher, he says, love tells me I'm everything. Wisdom tells me I'm nothing. And between these two, my life flows. The more we see through our illusion of our separate individuality, where we see that there's no place in us that exists independently apart from everything and everyone that has influenced us, that we are influencing, that everything is made up of a kind of matrix of inner being, This is basically seeing through the illusion of our separateness, where we're usually spinning in our mind, I'm separate, I'm the one wave that's gotten separated from the ocean. We forget that the waves never separate from the ocean. We are not separate from everything that, from beginningless time, everything that has brought us to be. Isn't that wild? That we are just being, we are literally, we are sharing, collaborating with our breath. Everything is connected to everything else. We realize this when we're quiet. We realize this when we stop. Even now, if we don't give rise for a moment of a thought of ourselves, the dividing line between us melts right away. One way to do that is through attention. 
attention, attention. We, the attention brushes the dust of our ideas, dust of memory, and allows us to feel this intimate connection with everyone around us. So wisdom tells us in that openness that, oh, I'm not who I imagine myself to be. But what's here? Everything and everyone. So wisdom tells me I'm nothing. Love tells me as I'm open, as I experience you, as you experience me, we're, we're all in this together. Where's the dividing line between us? Now our thinking mind is always dividing, always in conflict with other. Trying to get from point A to point B. How can, we, how can we not be exhausted when we're spinning all the time, trying to get somewhere, going nowhere? Loving, compassionate is cure our fatigue. Come home to yourself. Remember that poem I started with today, the Derek Walcott. Come home to yourself, uh, to the stranger who's loved you all your life, whom you ignored for another who knows you by heart. Take down the love letters from the bookshelves, the images, the, the angry notes. Peel your own image from the mirror. Sit, feast on your life. So that's, that's where we find and carry. To step out of the tangle of your fear thinking and Live in silence, as Rumi says, flow down and down in ever-widening circles or rings of being. And from that place of, of more openness, I don't know about you, I, I can't be, it's hard for me to, to be unkind from a place of not seeing you as apart from me. We're, okay, so now let's bring someone into the room who feels like other. And I still regard that person with kindness. And I see them as not existing independently apart from me. That's the challenge. So the compassion practice, the love practice keep showing us the limits of our, our open-heartedness. So the last part of today, the last sitting that we will do, will be a, you know, a loving-kindness practice. Now, I, I invite you to take home the self-compassion little piece that I dropped in. The self-compassion piece is when you're under stress, Touch the heart. I don't know if you know this, but when you rub the heart, it, it activates the, the um, vagal nerve. Is that what it is? Vagus nerve, and it releases oxytocin. And this, both mindfulness and this kind of inclining toward kindness simulates, activates the same thing in the brain as, um, as kind parenting as if you're held, if you're embraced. Lots of studies being done on the neurological effects of compassion and, and mindfulness. But once you're in the neighborhood of rubbing the heart, then 
dress yourself such, uh, uh, this especially when you're in a state of difficulty, which you inevitably will be as a human from time to time. This is a moment of stress. This is a moment of suffering. Suffering is part of life. And I meet myself with kindness, compassion in this moment. And then especially when we're being so hard on ourselves, unjudging, unforgiving. Any of you ever have that? Other little practice, self-compassion practice is first line. Um, it's okay that I'm not perfect. It's okay that I'm not perfect. It's okay that I make mistakes. It's okay that I'm a learner, that I'm still learning. Give myself. Okay, that I'm not perfect. People are, especially in our culture, are bound up in perfect in, in perfectionism. Ideal. The U.S. is known to be, all throughout the world, as excessively idealistic, and uh, and to hold, you know, with our stars and our. Athletes and our beings in general, we tend to have these idealized expectations and then measure ourselves according to impossible ideals. Don't peel behind the mirror and see, look behind the mirror and see the lives of, of everyone. Everyone is subject to the same worldly winds. So that with that perfectionism, we're really working ourselves very intensely, very un- unkind, very unwise. So it's okay that I'm not perfect. It's okay that I make mistakes. It's okay that I'm a learner. I forgive myself. Others who have caused us harm, what they said or didn't say, did or didn't do, thought or didn't think. We, best of our ability, offer forgiveness, forgive others. Just inclining in that way begins to open our hearts. And we forgive not so much for the other person we give because we don't want to hold on to a contracted, resentful heart. But again, that's a process too. So we incline as much as we're able to toward forgiveness. These are all acts of kindness and compassion toward ourselves and others. Beings who are suffering in this world, this is all general, then we'll, I'm, we're going to do a, a wider, more formal practice. But of course, all beings suffer, but there are those who seem to be in a particular state of distress in your own life and in the uh, lives of the collective. And 
Remember, wisdom tells us that we don't exist apart from them. So, of course, naturally our heart will extend to those who might be in difficult situations. But sometimes because we tend to be shrouded in, in our individualism, isolated in our own internal drama, we need to sometimes remember to help melt away the, the calcification in our heart that makes us see the world so small. And we just keep consciously bringing people to mind who are in states of distress. You can always find somebody near and dear. We call that the person who's suffering. And we start by saying, I care about your suffering. And we hold them in our heart. I care about your suffering. Or may you be free of suffering. And we balance out our compassion This is the compassion practice. I care about your suffering. I care about your situation. We balance that with equanimity, though, with the the boundless heart quality of equanimity that's mixed with wisdom. And equanimity says, I care about you, but I may not be able to keep you from suffering because you are the inheritor of, of conditions outside of my control. I will do everything I can to benefit you. And this is often very relevant to family members who are, who are having a hard time. But it can be from family members to groups, whoever is part of our circle of caring. Hopefully it's everyone. But we will do everything. Our heart's broken. We will do everything we can to be a benefit. But, but wisdom tells us, I may, not be able to, I may not be able to keep you from suffering. And so equanimity helps our compassion not devolve into sorrow, into despair, into hopelessness. We use the resilience and the courage of equanimity to step right into what's painful in this world. Sometimes the suffering person is you. So we... Start with ourselves. I care about my suffering. We wish ourselves to be free of suffering. And don't leave yourself out. No one exists apart from, no one is, has, there's no privileged level of suffering. If there's suffering, it deserves loving kindness no matter who you are. is any more important than any other. Live by that understanding. It's injustice. So I think we're we're running out of time. So let's start with ourselves and we will hopefully extend our caring and our kindness to all beings. a little invocation to this sitting would be um, a poem 
called May All Beings by Reverend Genju Earthland Manuel. May all beings be cared for and loved, be listened to, understood and acknowledged despite different views. Be accepted for who they are in this moment. Be afforded patience. Be allowed to live without fear of having their lives taken away or their bodies violated. May all beings be well in its broadest sense. Be fed. Be clothed. Be treated as if their life is precious. Be held in the eyes of each other as family. May all beings be appreciated, feel welcomed anywhere on the planet, be freed from acts of hatred and desperation, including war, poverty, slavery, and street crimes. Live on the planet housed and protected from harm. Be given what is needed to live fully without scarcity. Enjoy life living without fear of one another. Be able to speak freely in a voice and mind of undeniable love. May all beings receive and share the gifts of life. Be given time to rest, be still, and experience silence. May all beings be awake. This is... uh, Reverend Genzu Zenju Earthland Manuel. With that spirit of open mindedness, open heartedness, they're really one and the same. Only the English language has the split between mind and heart. In India, they, would, they touch their hearts and say, guard your mind. The word in Pali, Sanskrit, for mind and heart are the same. Let's settle our attention into our heart-mind, what we call our heart center, as though you're breathing in and out of the heart center. Using our heart center as a calling back to this living present. And let our heart feeling, our awareness expand to include our whole body sitting here. Without this body, no Buddha. Akwin Zenji says, oh, how sad that we ignore the near and search for truth afar. Oh, how I laugh when I hear that the fish in the water is thirsty. You don't understand that's most alive lives inside your own house. You wander from one holy city to the next with a confused look. I'll come back to your whole body sitting here. View your attention with kindness as you sweep your attention along the contours of your head. Hair and your scalp, skin and the bones of your skull, 
is gliding lovingly along the contours of your forehead, your eye sockets, cheeks, jaw, mouth. Each gentle movement of your attention along the contours of your head and face like a caress of loving kindness. Loving attention to your neck with its skin and its flesh and its muscles and the bones of the neck. Pressing the shoulders, skin, flesh, muscles, bones of the shoulders. Lovingly cascading down your arms, biceps, elbows, forearms, wrists, hands, down to the tips of the fingers, sensing lovingly the skin, the flesh, the muscles, and the bones of the arms. Sweeping through the along the curve of the back, the muscles, flesh, bones, the spine, sits bones, buttocks, skin, flesh, muscles in the bones of the butt, throat area, the heart center, the solar plexus and belly, Skin, flesh, muscles, bones, organs. Each gentle movement of attention of your body, sensing in the body with loving kindness. Lovingly caressing the thighs, the knees, the shins and calves, ankles and feet. Skin, flesh, muscles, bones of the legs that carry us. Whole body is enveloped in a field of kind, loving attention. Carries us through this life that withstands the worldly winds, deserving of kindness and compassion. Hopping into the middle of this field of loving awareness, words that express the deepest wish that we have for ourselves, that we all share. Meaning, felt sense of these words ripple through our whole being. Peaceful. Safe. world from inner harm and from outer harm. Safe with myself and safe with others. 
health and strength. Accept my limitations with grace. and fear. Feeling of well-being. Have ease of well-being. Accept myself just the way I am. having a particularly difficult time right now. Inner or outer conditions, physically, emotionally, add to the well-wishing by letting yourself know I care about myself. I care about my suffering. Letting our circle of caring, kindness, well-wishing, compassion expand to include everyone in this room who supported your practice today. Everyone, their humanity, their fragility, in your heart's eye, your mind's eye. Reflect as I want to be happy and peaceful, feel safe and protected, feel healthy and strong, easeful and well. And to have self-acceptance, may all of you be happy and peaceful. May all of you feel safe from inner and outer harm. All of you. Acceptance for your limitations. May all of you be touched by loving kindness. No ease of well-being. Mediating a wish for everyone here to be touched by your caring. Every measure of suffering and difficulty each person has.
know in our heart Bringing other near and dear ones to mind. People who may have made it possible for you to be here today. Loved friends. Beings who we ordinarily would not remember. The invisible, incarcerated. So many beings that we pass by without sensitivity. Bring everyone who we would ordinarily miss into our field of loving kindness and caring. All the difficult people in our lives, people who we have a hard time, who who have different views, including our politicians. Everyone possible into our field of caring. Some people are unable to see with a wide view, with a loving heart. To the best of our ability at this time, radiate that same goodwill to even the difficult people. Ultimately, to all beings everywhere without exception, all the animals, the creatures of the air, the waters, the earth, the seen and the unseen, we bring everyone into our circle of affection. We wish. Safety and protection. Strong. It's in your heart and a sense of well being. Best of my ability at this time, I extend my caring. I care about your suffering. Excluded. All beings have happiness and the causes of happiness increasing. We have suffering and the causes of suffering. Sacred happiness, the unshakable, traditional happiness, here and now not overlook this vital point. Serenity. Worldly winds, the joys and the sorrows. Less reactivity. Practice today 
and every day. The moment we wake up till the moment we rest our head in the pillow, may our practice be dedicated to the welfare and benefit of all. Thank you all for your practice today. A little quick tour. Perhaps you got a little more sense that it's a loving, most loving thing you can do for yourself is to grow in wisdom. And the wisest thing you can do for yourself and others is to be loving. And uh, it goes together with the other. They're not different. Wisdom and love are the same thing. So maybe that came through a little bit. Maybe not. If it didn't, Stay open. (laughs) See what happens. Anyway, thanks for staying with the day. A pleasure for me to be able to have the opportunity to remind myself of these things during these times. And I really appreciate you taking the time. And as I said in the morning, I think all beings, whether you know it or not, are cheering you on for, uh, for choosing to stop and to remember that this, uh, that world peace is an inside job can't be imposed on the world. It starts with each person. So you have engaged today, in spite of how it may appear, you have engaged in radical social action without knowing it. <laughs> I have, I'm really dead serious when I say that. Um, because the world is the way it is because people are the way they are. Okay? So thank you for your practice. All beings, thank you. And, uh, and please feel free to make Spirit Rock your habit, your home. Uh, and offer, you know, make it a pr- place where you practice generosity, that you practice service, all the pillars of the Dharma, generosity, non-harming, training your attention, all those things will help out, help this world. Thank you. Oh, if any of you want to sit with me every Tuesday night, at uh, it's called Mission Dharma, missiondharma.org in the city. Uh, it's, even when I'm not there, 32 years every Tuesday. So there, if I'm not there, somebody else is there. Usually, um, just it's a big church, and so a lot of people. So it, it'll help lift your practice a little bit. Good place to check in every week. Stray thoughts, Dharma talks, etc. Thank you.